Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on body shaming, suicide, depression, drug use and abuse, and sex and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is Season 5, Episode 3, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1990 black comedy film, Frankenhooker. It was directed by Frank Henenlotter, Written by Robert Martin and Henenlotter, and stars Patty Mullen, Louise Lasser, Joanne Ritchie, and James Lawrence. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it first. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. I'm just thinking of all the people who decided to watch Frankenhocker. <laughs> And then came back to this episode like, what the heck, guys? <laughs> what did you just make me watch? <laughs> so according to IMDb.com, writer-director Frank Henenlotter came up with the pitch for Frankenhooker in front of his producers on the spot. Oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> you never would have guessed. No. He had originally gone in to pitch something else, but his producer didn't like it and asked, so what else you got? Feeling anxious and desperate to get something made, Henenlotter pitched the most ridiculous story he could think of off the top of his head. Henenlotter had his producer in stitches. Uh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and Green lit the film. <laughs> Prior to Frankenhooker's release, Henenlotter was responsible for such cheap horror flicks as Basket Case and Brain Damage. Basket Case 2 was filmed simultaneously with Frankenhooker, but was released three months earlier. Oh my god, I had no idea! Yeah, you can actually see a good chunk of the cast from Basket Case 2 in Frankenhooker, and they play minor characters. Amazing. According to the blog Behind the Couch, Safe Fear in a Domestic Setting, Helen Lauder's films are, quote, scuzzy, low-budget exploitation flicks, boasting freakish protagonists engaging in all manner of seedy doings on the fringes of society. That's my kind of film. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Lauder is obsessed with the schlocky B-movie exploitation films of the 60s and early 70s, and it really shows in all of his films. Frankenhooker is obviously based on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but it should be noted that it is also heavily inspired by the 1962 B-horror film The Brain That Wouldn't Die, <laughs> which is about a doctor who, while experimenting with transplant techniques, keeps his girlfriend's head alive after she is decapitated in a car crash and he goes hunting for a new body. The Brain That Wouldn't Die is actually one of my favorite bad horror films. It's a mystery science theater film. Yes. 
So Frankenhooker would be Henenlotter's first SAG film, meaning he was supposed to use union actors who were members of the Screen Actors Guild. However, he ran into some trouble as the women the guild was sending him were not inclined to do nudity. Oh, dang. So Henenlotter went to Billy's Topless Bar to look for female performers there instead. (laughs) And a short while later, he had several women from the bar signed on. This worked out great for them because SAG ended up making each of them members of the guild. Oh, my God. That's incredible. (laughs) Henenlotter used the fake title Frankenstein 90 in official communications and on some copies of the script for the sole purpose of avoiding trouble related to people's reactions to the actual title. Ah, okay. All right. (laughs) It helped when he went looking for props, locations, and other necessities. (laughs) You want us to give you props for what movie? It does kind of sound like a porno spoof film. Absolutely. So, <laughs> since Frankenhooker is an homage to low budget gore movies, the FX makeup and prosthetics and the sets are deliberately clumsy. For instance, the interior of the Franken family garage is intentionally four times as large as the exterior. I noticed that, <laughs> as specified in Hen and Lauder's screenplay. <laughs> There was also a severe lack of blood for this film. Okay, listen, when you look at the house that Jeffrey lives in, you're like, one, how is your bedroom big enough to fit a dining room table in there to have a date with your dead girlfriend's head? Two, how you gonna have a science lab in your tiny, tiny garage? I was like, what? So, upon its release, some critics and horror fans looking for something more intense were upset that there wasn't a lot of blood in the film, and that the gore was just silly. (laughs) Henenlotter said, quote, This was never meant to be a horror film, and dismissed the complainers saying how he had set up to make it a schlocky comedy from the very beginning. Oh my god. So, funnily enough, Bill Murray, yes... That Bill Murray, of course, was quoted as saying, if you see one movie this year, it should be Frankenhooker. (laughs) (laughs) You will notice this quote on all of the marketing for Frankenhooker. Yes. (laughs) According to ComingSoon.net, in an interview with Henenlotter, the writer-director said that Murray was known to casually hang out with the Frankenhooker crew in New York City. Oh my god. After Murray expressed interest in their film, the distributor attempted to get an endorsement from him. Embarrassed that they would abuse Murray's friendliness, Henenlotter attempted to avoid Murray. Oh, wow. When they eventually ran into each other, Henenlotter apologized for the distributor pressuring him for an endorsement of a silly film and explained that he was personally not responsible. Uh-huh. Amused by the film's premise and Henenlotter's personality, Murray volunteered the quotation. Nice. Aww. It was very sweet of him. <laughs> According to Henenlotter in the Frankenhooker DVD commentary, the film costs $1.5 million to make, but Box Office Mojo stated that the film costs costs roughly 2.5 million and after its release on june 1st 1990 the film only made a little over 200,000 domestically oh man so yeah it kind of really failed yeah 
Oh, that's so sad. It's okay. It's so good. Frankenhooker is now widely considered to be one of the best B-films from the 1990s by critics and horror fans alike, with Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times calling it a hilarious, totally outrageous grin and gore comedy. Melissa Howard adds, Frankenhooker is not a film steeped in realism with well-crafted dialogue and big-budget props, but this is what characterizes its Slacky, unconventional appeal. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure can! Elizabeth Shelley is killed after a horrific lawnmower accident at her family barbecue. Her fiancé, Jeffrey Franken, is so heartbroken over the loss that he decides to create a new version of Elizabeth. Using his skills as a bioelectrotechnician, He creates a schematic for a new body, along with some improvements of his own to make her more sexy. We learn quickly that Jeffrey is a little bit mad, as he keeps Elizabeth's head in a cooler, bubbling in an estrogen-based serum to keep it from decomposing. In order to create the perfect body, Jeffrey calls on a group of female sex workers run by a pimp named Zorro, who allows him to quote-unquote rent them out for a party. (laughs) Unbeknownst to them, his plan was to find the perfect one to kill and take home to serve as Elizabeth's surrogate body, but his plans are interrupted when the group of women find Jeffrey's homemade concoction of super crack while they are gathered for their measurements. They go crazy, smoking crack, listening to devil music, and partying together until they actually explode. (laughs) Jeffrey gathers up the body parts and takes them back home, beginning his experiment. When Elizabeth is brought back to life, she's a little bit different. Because Jeffrey used so many different parts from different women, her body is unique and her memories even more so. She escapes Jeffrey's home and goes on the hunt for paying customers as Frankenhooker. As she makes her way through the city, she runs into Zaro, the pimp who owned all of the women that make up her newly formed body. Jeffrey finds Elizabeth and brings her home to fix her, um, ticks. Zorro follows them and kills Jeffrey by decapitating him, but Zorro is swept away by the rest of the sex workers' body parts that Jeffrey discarded. With Jeffrey now dead, Elizabeth decides to take matters into her own hands and resurrect him. The only issue is that Jeffrey and Zorro's bodies are useless, so she uses the discarded female body parts for Jeffrey's new body instead, claiming that she loves him and now they can all be together again. Wow, thank you, Abby. That film is a hot mess. <laughs> and I love it. You know, I when I was watching the audio commentary on the Blu-ray, uh Hen and Lauder said how he had no clue how to end the film. <laughs> and he actually started filming it before he had an ending. Brilliant. Yeah. I love that ending. <laughs> I do too. And freaking knocks the whole movie out of the park. You know? And I think he was like, how can I top what I've already put on screen? <laughs> and he did a great job. And I mean, we're going to talk about what this means for, you know, like in a social sense as well. Yes. But first, let's talk about the Bechtel test. Yes. Yes, it passes. Mm-hmm. It actually passes when... Um, it passes a few times, which is really great. Uh, but some of the context of when it passes is like, it, isn't questionable. Yes, yes. 
Because it's the women talking about the super crack and how they're like super excited for it. And um, (laughs) like talking with, uh, you know, being body shamed and stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's a little questionable, but it does pass. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Nancy's dream team test. Let's see what it passes here. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yep. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl a person of color? There were no final girls in this, uh, but none of the main characters were people of color. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in the film? There were two girls making out during the super crack party scene, <laughs> but it is not clear whether they are just partying or they're actually within the LGBTQ community. Ah, uh, true. I mean, but we don't know. Yeah, so. true. Yes. So, feminism in Frankenhooker. So, quoting the blog behind the couch again, quote, were it not for the fact that that it's all so ludicrous and over-the-top, Frankenhooker could be seen as a misogynistic piece of grindhouse that views women as no more than the sum of their separate body parts. And one of the biggest complaints that I see about this film is that uh, it treats women with disrespect. But I think that's the point. Yeah. Because from what I understand uh, watching the audio commentary with Henenlotter, mm-hmm. who is one of the most wholesome sounding gentlemen I have ever heard. He like talked about how he made sure that he was respectful and that all of the nudity that was in the film was okay with the women who are doing it. There is even a scene where Patty Mullen, who plays Elizabeth, uh, she was supposed to have a full frontal scene Mm -hmm. and she wasn't comfortable with it. She didn't like it. And he was like, okay. And he just cut it out because he was like, I don't, I'm not going to do it if she doesn't like it. Oh, that's so sweet. Right. And, you know, so he didn't force anybody to do anything that they didn't want to do. And even when he tried to put it in the scene with like another person's Mm -hmm. full frontal, (laughs) another woman's body parts, um, he, he tried it and he, he didn't think it was funny. He's like, this is kind of weird and not yeah he he didn't think it like worked so he just took it out altogether and i was like well you know like that's good that he has taste actually right you know so uh but a lot of people were really upset and i think that that's the point because the men in this film do see the women as body parts yeah absolutely and it's not okay we know that it's not okay because of that ending. Like, the ending completely turns everything on its head, which we'll talk about later. Yes. So I think that saying that this film is not feminist it means that you're not looking at it correctly. Because not only do the men see the women in this as just body parts, but some of the women, Elizabeth's mom, see her as just body parts. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about controlling a woman's body with fat shaming, because that happens in this. Um, (laughs) According to an analysis by the Center for Advancing Health, it was revealed that high school students who believed themselves to be overweight were much more likely than their classmates to suffer from depression Mm -hmm. or attempt suicide. This is expanded on in an article from Technology Today by 
Gabriel Gavin called What's Wrong with Fat Shaming? And he says, it is clear that pressure to conform to some notion of desirability is present from a young age, and to not fit into that can cause serious mental health problems. And this could be eating disorders. Uh, Gavin adds that even if this wasn't true, which it is, but if it wasn't, it is clear that victimization and discrimination against people who are fat isn't a motivator in reducing their weight. Hmm. So, (laughs) I mean. (laughs) So, science. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, basically, Elizabeth's mom's a jerk. Yes. (laughs) She shames her for eating so many pretzels. And Jeffrey, who seems to love her for who she is, it's revealed that he's already tried to staple her stomach. Yikes. And then use these thinner women to make her up again after she dies. Like, these are two people in her life that she would listen to. It's her mother and her fiance. So when they're making suggestions about not eating so much or let's staple your stomach, like, that's damaging. Uh, absolutely. Also, her... I, I think it's supposed to be, like, her best friend who is at the party or, yeah. like, a close cousin, something like that. She has this incredulous expression on her face when she hears about this. Right. Like, Elizabeth tells her that Jeffrey tried to staple her stomach once, and she's like, Jeffrey stapled your stomach? <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, he's not a doctor. Right. So she's like, what? So, but she doesn't, like, say or do anything about it. She's just like, okay, like, I'm not trying to shift the responsibility to bystanders, but at the same time, it's like, if you see something, say something. Like, clearly, that's a form of abuse. So, and it, it also shows that going to the extremes to fit in doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things if you're surrounded by the wrong people. Like, you're never going to be enough. You'll never be thin enough. Yeah, you're Mm. absolutely right. Like, there's no perfect woman. Mm -hmm. There's no perfect man. There's no perfect woman. And there's no perfect weight. Yeah. I mean, someone might think that you're perfect just the way that you are, no matter what, which is great. But when when we think of it in terms of, like, dumbing it down, there is no such thing as perfection. Yeah. In a in a in a wider sense, and like Jeffrey measures all of the sex workers' appendages, and he's trying to pick like the perfect ones, because again, there is no one perfect body. Right. So he's like measuring all of these different women, and he's just like, oh, but your leg is great, but your hand is better, <laughs> but I like this better, but your boobs do this. Your boob. <laughs> that yes. one girl whose boobs just like wow, that was incredible. <laughs> I'm like, was- dang, girl. She can make her boobs like go up and down. It's crazy. But yes. like, so each of these women have like something that's like something that he thinks is like better than someone else's, but they're not all on one person's body. Yes. And that is something that Jeffrey wants to control and make his girlfriend his version. And it's so damaging. Yes. Everyone is built a certain way for a reason. And after Elizabeth is stitched together with different parts, like, she she can't move properly because her body doesn't have the right proportions to make it function. And it, like, it reminds me of the lifelike Barbie doll simulations that show why Barbie wouldn't work as, like, an actual human being. And she would be, like, a million feet tall and, like, too skinny to function. It's like... 
Yeah. And she's like walking on her tiptoes. Yeah. It's so gross. Yes. It's so gross. Oh. But she's that- like a velociraptor. You know how they walk? <laughs> Barbie is a velociraptor. I'm sick of these unrealistic beauty expectations. <laughs> Velociraptors have been extinct for a long time. <laughs> That's so great. Listen, this actually brings us uh, into another form of controlling a woman's body, and that's by not legalizing sex work. So in the film, Jeffrey is watching a talk show where there is a woman of color speaking to a white man about the importance of legalizing sex work. Her program is called H-O-O-K-E-R, Hooker. Or hold on to our knowledge of equal rights. Yes. (laughs) I love it. She argues that if sex was legal, then these men and women could earn money for themselves and not be slaves to drugs or to have to answer to dangerous pimps. Yes. So that's her argument in Frankenhooker. Well, first of all, it normalizes it for everyone. And I guess New Zealand legalized sex work in 2003, which I had no idea, and they called it the Prostitution Reform Act. A recent study by the Christchurch School of Medicine shows that about 90% of sex workers in New Zealand felt that the PRA finally gave them the employment, health, and safety rights that they deserved. Yes. While 64% found it easier to refuse clients. And now this is probably the most significant. 57% said that police attitudes towards sex workers changed for the better. Yes. Which means that the majority of sex workers in New Zealand felt that they could go to the police for help if they felt threatened or if they got hurt by a client. And that just says a lot about how people view sex and sex workers in general. It's like... it's frustrating but it's also really uplifting in the same sense that police are now taking them seriously because it's how they earn their living right whereas before it's like you should just do the right thing because they're human beings like oh it's so frustrating it's like a catch-22 kind of but and you know what people do is they argue like well if it was your daughter would you want your daughter to be doing sex work and it's like actually Uh, There are a lot of things that I probably wouldn't want my daughter to do, like be an investigative journalist during the war. Yes. Or. (laughs) Yeah, they're dangerous jobs. Or to be a machine operator or to be a race car driver. Like there are things that I would be or my son being a football player, my daughter being a football player, like things were like the job is dangerous and you can get hurt. Yes. Like there are a lot of jobs where your child would do something and you'd be afraid that they would get a head injury or they would get killed or something. Mm -hmm. And, but for some reason, people are really upset about sex. (laughs) Even though everyone does it. Like, yeah, well, that's true. (laughs) So Jeffrey seems to agree with the woman on the show. And in the movie, he yells at the TV that she is right. (laughs) But while he's doing this, he's creating a drug that will kill the women sex workers so that he can use their preferred body parts to make his quote unquote perfect girlfriend. Mm. And that's that's a problem that has to do with the extent to which we disown individuals. Mm -hmm. 
especially women who do sex work. Yes. And I mean, this is often something with porn, too. We're like, like, we'll watch porn and we'll jerk off to porn. But like, at the same time, we're like, porn is bad. Don't watch it. Yeah. It's, it's a like, hypocritical thing. Yeah. It, like guys who go to strip clubs and then like they sleep with a girl and find out that she's a stripper and they're like, ew, oh my God, I better go get tested because you probably have gross diseases. And it's like. Y'all were just spending like hundreds of dollars at the strip club. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. And for this, it's like a reverse thing where it's like, yes, women should be treated with respect, whatever. But then he's just going to go kill them. Right. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Well, it's that like cognitive dissonance thing where like it's different when you're face to face with someone. But mm-hmm. like if you're just watching it on a screen, like you don't have to know about what happens to the girl after like they cut from that scene or like whether she's on drugs and like has to pay for a drug addiction like you don't know so you don't care right yeah so according to a 2013 report by melissa hope ditmore she says quote female sex workers are at increased risk are at an increased risk of sexual violence and other forms of victimization including murder yeah which is Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. People who sell sex while intoxicated are more likely to experience violence than those who are not intoxicated, particularly in street-based and low-status settings. Frankenhooker. (laughs) The setting of Frankenhooker. The entire film. Sex workers' ability to be street savvy may be compromised when they have used psychoactive drugs, including alcohol, making them more vulnerable. And so here's the thing. This is exactly what Zorro and Jeffrey do. They use drugs to control these women so that they can be violent towards them. Yeah. And I mean, like, Zorro and Jeffrey, like, Jeffrey is supposed to be our, our sympathetic like anti-hero maybe like he he doesn't want to kill them but he does he doesn't try to really stop it and he doesn't you know he brings the crack with him like his I mean, he has intentions like, it's like every serial killer ever i didn't want to kill them i just had to it's like okay well control your urges please well and like zorro who is a pimp is like stomping around and controlling his products which are the bitches we calls them his bitches <laughs> i was like Wow, that stings really bad to hear that. (laughs) And then Jeffrey, like, uses the super crack to, you know, make get their body parts. So they're really not so different from each other. Right. So, like, Frankenhooker can really be seen as, like, a film about two men fighting over who gets to own this woman or that woman for their own, like, personal well-being. It's kind of interesting because they are like the physical abuse and emotional abuse that happens to women. Mm-hmm. So Zorro uses brute force to control and Jeffrey makes Elizabeth feel like she has to change herself because of the things that Jeffrey says to her. Right. They're the same in many ways because they are like the peak of toxic masculinity. No woman is good enough for them, and they're disposable. Right. And they do things under the guise of love. So Zorro protects his women because it's dangerous out on the streets, and Jeffrey gives Elizabeth life because being his version of an ideal girl is better than being dead, right? Yeah. So what I find really funny is that the men in this movie create problems for the women, but act like the women need them? 
What? Like, yes. Jeffrey's invention killed Elizabeth. So his solution is to build a bigger and better version of her. And Zorro literally makes money off of putting women in dangerous situations, but offers his protection. So it's like, without men. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. But really, though, without men, they wouldn't have these problems. No, they could just have started working on their own. Right, right. <laughs> they could eat all the GD pretzels they want. <laughs> Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. So this actually transitions really well into the American crack epidemic and the Just Say No campaign, which is actually mentioned in the film. So Jeffrey makes a point to justify his killing of the sex workers with exploding drugs by saying, if they don't want it, they can just say no. Oh, my God. And this is a clear mockery of the Nancy Reagan campaign for Just Say No. So let's get into some history. Just Say No was an advertising campaign created by First Lady Nancy Reagan, and the slogan was invented by Robert Cox and David Cantor, who were NYC advertising executives. Just Say No was part of the U.S. War on Drugs political campaign during the 1980s and early 1990s, which is when Frankenhooker takes place. It was used to discourage children from engaging in illegal drugs drug use by suggesting different ways of saying no oh my god i remember having to do the dare program yeah. in school mm-hmm. did you guys have to do it because you were homeschooled so nope. did you there was there was well, we didn't have to worry about drugs lucky <laughs> you were safe unless your parents were drug users you didn't have to worry about drugs if you were homeschooled <laughs> like i remember that being a huge Every single year in elementary and middle school, for some reason they didn't do it to us when we were in high school, which were like the crucial they years. Gave up on you. Yeah, they were like, if they don't get it by now, then whatever. But it was like I would have police officers come in and sit down and they would do like a made up scenario. They would play a drug dealer and then you would have to like come up with a way to say no. And it was the most ridiculous thing. And of course, we were tiny kids, so we said the dumbest things. 
that would never work. You were probably just like, yeah, sure. I would. I imagine there's that one kid in class who's like, I'll have some drugs. And then they're just like, no, (laughs) (laughs) that's not how this works. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was useless. So that's actually interesting because according to Scott O. Lillenfield and Hal Artsowitz in their article, Why Just Say No Doesn't Work, (laughs) although the use the use and abuse of illegal recreational drugs significantly declined during the Reagan presidency. Mm. This may be a spurious correlation. A 2009 analysis of 20 controlled studies on enrollment in one of the most popular Just Say No programs, DARE, showed no effect on drug use. If anything, it taught us how to do drugs. I'm not even kidding. Yes. Like, actually, that is so interesting because they, Lillenfield and Artswitz say that. Uh, they say that it was debated that Nancy Reagan's approach to promoting drug awareness was too simplistic. Yeah. That the solution was, the solution was just reduced to a catchphrase. But and they said that there were two studies that highly suggested that enrollees in dare-like programs were actually more likely to use drugs. Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. That's so true. I had like a handful of drug dealers in my school. Oh, no. Which, okay, to be fair, they weren't exactly like hard drugs. It was like weed. People grew weed in their basements. Yeah. And it wasn't was, like meth. Right. <laughs> yeah. But... The D.A.R.E. program treated marijuana like meth. Like, yeah, that's, that's rough. Yeah, it was very rough. So, I mean, you know, thanks, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to Michael McGrath, it seemed that Just Say No and other drug awareness programs just inflamed people's fears. Yes. It promoted mass incarceration and it prevented citizens from receiving accurate information about dealing with drug abuse whoa weird so that would be like the marijuana like that was not an accurate representation of marijuana right and here's the issue now because so many of us were brought up to think that way now that we are having all these problems with like heroin yep and especially in the central new york area it might be different in other states and stuff like that no but but new york has a terrible problem with that yeah so everyone is like oh well everyone has a choice you could have just said no and it's like it's not that simple so no it's not and i mean it is also highly regarded that just say no contributed towards the stigma that people who are addicted to drugs are inherently bad and immoral yeah so that whole thing with like why are these people doing this they could have just said no like they must just be bad people right losers right and i mean we talked about drug abuse in our evil dead episode and how it's been proven that you don't just wake up one day and decide to become addicted to drugs. There's normally something else like deep inside your psyche that makes you feel like you have to take drugs. Yes. It's not because you're a terrible person. It's because something terrible has happened to you. Exactly. I think that this film does a really good job with dealing with this common theme of sex and drugs in a not-so-common way, very much like how Evil Dead did it. Yeah. And, you know, I f- like New York City was, like, filled with sex work and crack pipes and, and drug dens and all this crazy stuff. And, like, Frankenhooker elevates itself through, like, these ab- observations of this 
darkness that was happening through the streets. And I mean, like, Hennen Lauder on the audio commentary talked about living in New York City and seeing like all these women who were just coked out or just, you know, drug oh, drugged out on, yeah. on these terrible, terrible drugs. And he actually like there was one woman, he said, who lived in I think it was his apartment complex, but she like lived in the lobby. And Aww. when it got late at night, he would always be like, OK, honey, it's 7 p.m. Time to go home. Like you know, it's late, like it's time to leave. And he would like try to like persuade her to like get up off the floor and like move and like go oh, home. That's so sad. Yeah. And so it, I, it's so interesting that he just sort of came up with Frankenhooker on the spot. And I, I think one of those reasons was because he already sort of had that like tragedy in his brain Yeah. of like this terrible situation where women were addicted to drugs because that was what was keeping them with their pimps and stuff yeah so yeah it's really interesting oh man so taking back our power so <laughs> the vagina dentata <laughs> it is not a feminist podcast unless you mention that <laughs> you are absolutely correct <laughs> or elizabeth's electrocuting vagina oh my god <laughs> Incredible. So, the vagina dentata. Such folk stories are frequently told as cautionary tales warning of the dangers of unknown women and to discourage rape. Yes. This is not a curse, but a source of power. Hell yeah! (laughs) In her book, Sexual Persona, uh, which came out in 1991, Camille Padula wrote... The tooth vagina is no sexist hallucination. Every penis is made less in every vagina, just as mankind, male and female, is devoured by Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in his book, The Wimp Factor, Stephen J. Ducat expresses a similar view that, quote, these myths express the threat sexual intercourse poses for men who, although entering triumphantly, always leave diminished i mean (laughs) isn't it natural to think of it this way like when intercourse happens ew i sound like a health teacher (laughs) don't have sex if you have sex you'll get pregnant and die (laughs) mean girls everybody so but like seriously when intercourse happens a vagina is filled with life like literally and it takes and creates a new human, and men are left empty. And in the natural world, many species kill the male after they mate because the man is useless. Like, the female can... Seriously! She can just carry the offspring and give birth and have another mate or litter. And the male is just taking up space and resources. Which is what happens with Elizabeth. Yeah, She electrocutes that guy to death. He explodes. His head pops off. And then she takes his money and runs. She's like, "Mm, y'all weren't ready. Because he's useless now. Like, okay, cool. I did what I had to do. Now I can take your money and leave. I think you could argue that he was useless before. Oh, no. He was kind of gross. He was really gross. I was like, But you know what? He, if we want to justify this character, he, he was like really into her, her. She, he really was. He was. He, none of these other guys liked her. They were like, she's creepy. She has stitches all over her. Yes. But this guy was like, I'm into this. Yes. So, you know. 
And I mean... Like I said, there's someone for everyone. Oh, my God. That's the other thing, too. She kisses the guy who kisses her without her permission. I'm going to stick my tongue down your throat. I was like, what the hell kind of line? <laughs> Did you come up with that on your own? <laughs> Buddy. And she Ooh. electrocutes him. And then she does that little thing with her finger on her lip. Like, yeah. yum. <laughs> and I was when I was watching the audio commentary, one of the um, guys who did the makeup, it wasn't the guy on the screen. It was the guy who was head of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot his name. I'll, I'll make sure that it's in the show notes. But he said while she was doing that thing with her with her her finger and her lip, he goes victory. <gasps> and when he and that was like the only thing like during that scene, victory. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Oh my god, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. So I love that scene. It's so great. Yes. So let's let's get philosophical. Oh geez, that that uh, did a one eighty real quick. <laughs> With Frankenhooker. Oh my goodness. So, the existence of souls. Oh. According to Robert Lanza, MD, in his 2011 Psychology Today article called Does the Soul Exist? Evidence says yes. (laughs) Well, the idea that we and the universe are all made up of mathematical equations of carbon and proteins and nothing more is what our current scientific paradigm is based on but biocentrism which is a new theory of everything challenges this traditional materialistic model of reality when scientists speak of the soul if at all it is usually in a materialistic context or treated as a poetic synonym for the mind everything knowledgeable about the soul can be learned by studying the functioning of the brain In their view, neuroscience is the only branch of scientific study relevant to understanding the soul. Wow. So Lanza explains this further by comparing the existence of the soul with the famous two-slit experiment in which a particle, when observed like a bullet, goes through one slit, but then when not observed, it becomes a wave and goes through two slits at the same time. Now, I am not smart enough to explain this to you. So please check out the article. It is in the show notes. I can say, though, that Frankenhooker explores this as well, because like stated earlier, scientists have only looked at the brain to study the soul. But Hen and Lauder's film explores the existence of the soul in other body parts. Whoa. So for many Greek philosophers, the soul resided in one of the mysterious and generally misunderstood internal organs. So that could have been like the stomach or the kidneys or the liver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was usually somewhere inside the body. Uh, some people thought that the soul was also in the big toe. <laughs> the what? <laughs> yeah, I read that in the book Spook. That some people thought it was in the big toe. Which one, though? You got two of them. (laughs) So how does that work? Someone tell me. So, like, Elizabeth, if you believe in the soul being in, like, any part of your body, Mm -hmm. the Elizabeth is, like, one giant horcrux. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're getting real, real nerdy over here. 
<laughs> oh my god you're right so this is okay so this is a quote by will durant he says the hope of another life gives us courage to meet our own death and to bear with the death of our loved ones we are twice armed if we fight with faith and then lanza continues that quote and says and we are thrice armed if we fight with science dang you gotta have both yes well, this is interesting to think about in the context of organ donation, too. Yes. Like, when you use a piece of another person's body, you have their DNA and it becomes a part of you. And you don't need to procreate to make a new person. But at the same time, you're altering your own body and DNA to keep on ticking. So technically, you are a new person because yeah. you're introducing someone else to your body. Yes. I mean, if we really want to be strangely grim about this whole thing like you are a creation yeah a man-made creation of other body parts if you have other organs in your body that belong right. to somebody else <gasps> you know another thing is that people thought that the soul was in the heart as well and we kind of talked yes. about this when we were doing our bride of frankenstein episode because uh she like they're they're working on the heart and like the heart is the most important thing and like everything in the and like um dr frankenstein is the one working on the heart so like that's why like she's attracted to him when she like wakes up because like everything in the heart is like what she feels so yeah it's it's really i love how hen and lauder took these very sophisticated ideas and used them in his B-movie schlocky film. I know. It's incredible. It is. So let's get into our final thought. Reading the female body as a symbolic resource to understanding. So Elizabeth says, I feel like there are so many women inside me. And this is when she is like, quote unquote fixed like her ticks are fixed and mm. like her her personality comes through mm-hmm. uh and she says this like she feels all of these sex workers all these women inside her and for me this could be a metaphor for understanding where other women come from and when she turns jeffrey into a woman and she says we are together again all of us this could mean the beginning of a mutual understanding for jeffrey as well Dang. as a white male to now understand all of these women of color who come from a different background they don't come from suburbia like he does or like elizabeth does they don't maybe don't have caring families like they do like they come from a very different background and they have very different skin color as well yes I love it. So Nightmare Maven, who's one of our favorite YouTubers, she actually wrote a great essay about the feminism in Frankenhooker. And she says, once Elizabeth is finally brought back, the female, the many female sex workers used to rebuild her take over and she can only repeat the lines that they are used to saying. Like, want a date? Got any money? I love it. Oh, my God. (laughs) And this distresses Jeffrey, which is interesting consider considering he had no problem using the hookers for their body parts but doesn't accept their mannerisms for his own girlfriend ah and to me this just says that jeffrey is a representation of the male quote-unquote ideal yeah like it kind of reminds me that stupid saying you can't turn a hoe into a housewife like it's it's yeah well yeah it's used as a weapon against many women 
But for me personally, like I think that's a powerful ownership of who you are as a person. Like Jeffrey has a fetish and a craving for a, a certain type of woman. But when he finally gets what he wants, it's too much for him to handle. And Elizabeth is like, mm, nah, sorry, not going to be like your little housewifey person that you want. Like it totally backfires on him. Right. Yeah. Frankenhooker 1990 is all about acceptance and love, I think. Heck yeah. It really is. And because Elizabeth is now like this woman who understands like intersectional feminism. Yes. And she now has like, like I said, like the knowledge of all of these women, their past and their presence. And now she and these women can control their future Mm -hmm. as a team because they are one person. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. I think, too, Jeffrey probably finds this super intimidating because now she has all the sexual experiences of these women. That, too. And it's really funny because she has all of this knowledge and she chooses to turn her boyfriend into a woman, probably partially because she prefers it. I'm going to just sip my tea over here (laughs) and just... Jay saying. What's really funny is that she fixes him, I think, pretty fast. We yeah. don't really know how much time has gone by, but I assume not a lot because all of the bodies were there yeah. for her. You kept really good notes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's almost like she, because she is more knowledgeable about all of these women and all of their experiences and, and she is more worldly, I think she has become more like she's intelligent yes. and she's able to do this. She's able to put him back together. Mm-hmm. In the body that she wanted. Yes. And she's super <laughs> confident now, too. She yes. just, like, there's no mention of, like, really what she looks like, which I thought was kind of interesting, too. Right. Yeah. So. And, like, I think this is amazing because now Jeffrey will know what it's like to menstruate. But. <laughs> maybe even give birth or oh. go through menopause. Oh. And his perception of the female born body experience will change drastically. This man is actually wiring the body of a female to fit his needs, his sexual desires. Yes. Cuz he says like I'm going to make the body that you want, but what he's really saying is I'm going to make the body that I want. Mm-hmm. And by now having a body himself that was not decided for him, he now understands the hurt that comes with deciding what a body should look like without someone's consent. Oh, mic drop. Except don't drop the mic. They're expensive. (laughs) But yes, I totally agree. And I mean, like, this is something that we don't have experience with, but I can only assume that this could really relate to even our American Mary episode. Yes. Like, we didn't choose the body that we were born with, or people who are trans. Like, we didn't choose the the sex that we were born with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, that's good stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's it. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers, TV shows, new movies over there, so become a patron, won't you? 
You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. We're also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. Also, tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!